Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. This week, I want to talk a little bit about monsters. So this inspiration comes from a couple of different places. One is that I've been listening to Halberts and Helmets, which I mentioned before. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And Alex is talking about the various monsters. And I really like the way he's talking about his monster manual in kind of these broad strokes. And one thing I think is interesting is what he's doing is he's talking about what makes each of these monsters interesting. And that is something that I think we start to lose when we oversimplify systems. I've talked about this before. I am a big fan of not having a standard mechanic, even though I do like D6 damage for every weapon, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, but, you know, the idea that monsters, in order to make them easier to run, become simpler and simpler, and they have standard actions, and they this does this, that does that. So when you're running a monster, you can just be like, okay. So a good example of this would be Limitations of the Flame Princess, right? It gives you a really simple mechanic to make any monster you want, which is basically its hit dice is its bonus to its attack. It's also its bonus to its armor class. And it's obviously hit dice ends up being the number of hit points it has. So anything you think of, you could be like, well, I want to have a flying, you know, tortoise. Well, if okay, it's three hit dice. We know its stats right away, right? Now, of course, I, I'm oversimplifying. It does talk about adding special abilities and blah, blah, blah. What you, what you could do and make each monster unique, which is a good part of that system. But I think a lot of times we take only the simpler part of the system going, I don't want to have to pick up my books when I'm playing. I just want to know that it's a skeleton and it's or it's a specter. And I'm saying that because I'm looking at a certain page. Hobgoblins, I know what they are, right? So I don't need any kind of special rules. But when we look back at OD&D, some of the monsters have very specific rules as to how they are engaged. And to be honest, I'm really liking this. As I'm just continuing to kind of develop my system, mostly in playtesting right now, I'm just like, I have my old printout and I'm making notes all over it and stuff. I'm realizing that I like the depth of a monster. So I'm going to read the white to you because I think this is a really great example of what I'm talking about. So this is from uh, OD&D. It's on page nine of the fourth printing. Whites. Barrow whites, per Tolkien, are nasty critters who drain away life energy levels when they score a hit in melee. One level per hit. Thus a hit removes both the hit die and the corresponding energy to fight, i.e. a ninth level fighter would drop to 8th level. Whites cannot be affected by normal missile fire, but silver-tipped arrows will score normal damage, and magic arrows score double hits upon them. Magic weapons will score full hits upon them, and those with special bonuses add the amount to the bonus to the hit points scored. Men types killed by whites become whites. An opponent who is totally drained of life energy by a white becomes a white. So we've got a few things here. And again, you got to kind of read between the OD&D lines here to see what we have going on here. Whites cannot be affected by normal missile fire. So that means regular arrows don't work on whites. Silver tip arrows do though. Okay. Magic arrows score double hits. So you would roll two dice, right? Two D6. Because every weapon in OD&D does a D6 damage. Magical weapons score full hits. So full hits, again, not normal hits or double hits. It's full hits, which means maximum damage. So if you use a magical weapon against a white, it causes maximum damage when you hit them. That is six points of damage. And if the weapon has a bonus, which most magic weapons do, let's plus one, plus two, that's added. So you got a plus two sword, you hit a white, it does eight points of damage. You don't even have to roll. This is really cool. Because, again, it changes things. It doesn't say that they can't be hit by normal weapons, which is, let's say, in BX. Regular weapons hit whites normally. 
just not regular arrows. So you've got to engage a, a white in melee. If you only have regular weapons, you've got to engage the whites in melee where they are super deadly because they drain life energy levels, right? So what you want to do is fight them at range. But of course, only silver tip arrows can hurt them. So if you only have a handful of silver tipped arrows, you got to kind of pepper the whites before you get close, right? Regular missiles don't affect them at all. If you have a couple of magic arrows, here's where you want to use them, right? Or maybe on dragons. Maybe we'll talk about it another time. But this all kind of works together to create a monster that you can use strategy to overcome. Different weapons hurt them in different ways. And they're, of course, incredibly deadly because not only do they drain life energy, but they also turn you into a white. So it doesn't say anything about the next day or whatever. So you could take this as a white takes you down. You basically raise back up. Now, what's interesting here, too, is that, again, this is where, like, some people might have confusion in OD&D, maybe, because this kind of says two different things to me. One is that you don't roll damage when a white hits you. You just lose a level. And when you lose a level, you lose a hit die, which basically is the damage, right? We know in later editions that's not true. You lose the level plus the hit die, plus the hit points from that level, and you take damage, which, by the way, I don't use in my games. I've always house-ruled that the level drain is the damage you take. So basically, if you're a magic user and you get hit by a white, you drop a level down and you lose a d4 hit points if you're in a game that uses uh, you know, various hit dice. So anyways, that, that's important, right? And actually, there are some levels, let's say a magic user on second level gets hit by a white. Well, a magic user only got one hit point at second level, so they would just lose one hit point. They wouldn't lose a d6, if that makes sense. That's how I run them anyways, but this kind of could be interpreted either way, right? Because it says here... Uh, an opponent who is totally drained of life energy by a white becomes a white, but it also says man types killed by whites. The other thing we can look at this and say, because it doesn't say normal men here, so that means anybody. If you're fifth, sixth, seventh level and you get killed by a white, you become a white, right? It's not uh, normal men because that would uh, be like low level, you know, uh, characters or you know non heroic types. But it doesn't say that here. So we have a few interesting things. So the way that I generally run the whites is as follows: we can say they're immune to normal missile fire. Boom, right? Silver tipped arrows score norm normal damage. So a silver arrow, you just attack regularly. If you're using a magic arrow to attack them, though, I would count every hit to be two hits, which is basically what it says here. Magic weapons score full hits. So the way I would accomplish that in my game is that whites are vulnerable to magic weapons, meaning that if a white defends as, I can't remember what they defend as, but let's say they defend as heavy foot against a magic weapon, they would only defend as light foot. That's usually how I handle stuff like that. It's not a perfect science, but that's pretty much how I handle those kind of things. And of course, if they go down by the, if they lose a level, oh, by the way, the way I do level draining, which I've talked about before, but I'll mention it here, just in case you haven't followed every one of the podcasts is if your white is, I don't remember how many hit, I think white's three hit dice. So let's say a white rolls three dice to hit you because you're, let's say, heavy foot and it's attacking you, blah, blah. So it needs a six to hit you. And so if you're three hit dice or five hit dice or 10 hit dice, it can't kill you because it's three D6. Even if it hit every one of them, it wouldn't be enough to take you out, right? But any level draining monster in my game, if it scores any of the dice that could hit you, you are drained, but only once per round or hit. So in the example of the, that they have here, the ninth level fighter. So let's say you've got a ninth level fighter and the white throws, you know, three dice because why would they even bother, right? They can't kill them, but they'd still throw three dice because if any of those come up as sixes, assuming that's a hit, they'll be drained one level. Otherwise, they won't, right? So easy as that. Uh, same thing for vampires. That's just pretty much how I do level draining. 
So I'm curious what you guys think about this. Do you like things like vampires can't look at mirrors, the whites are affected differently by different weapons, a fighter or a hero, I should say, with a, with a bow can actually kill a dragon really much easier than one without one, stuff like that. These are all in the rules of chainmail in D&D. &D. And I think a lot of them just got put to the side because people didn't want to be referring to the rules as they were playing. But I would say at that point, if you know you're going to have an encounter with whites because you're in some kind of a tomb as a dungeon master, just look through it and make sure you jot down notes for yourself. It's it's not that difficult to really do. So I don't know. I'm of two ways. I've heard lots of people say they don't like any rule books at the table. They don't like people to look things up. They just play and whatever. They just make it happen. And I find the more that you do that, the more you end up kind of hand waving these things, which I think are super cool. Not saying that's a bad way to play. I do it a lot myself, but I think if we dig into some of this stuff at the table, it can really create another level of interest for the players when they're fighting certain creatures, in this case, whites. So I would love to know what you think. You can leave me a message using the Anchor website thing down in the uh, show notes. You can send me a message on Discord. I'm on Audio Dungeon. I'm on Cleric Square Ringmail. I'm on my own Discord if you want to join that. There's a link down there as well. Uh, but before we get to the end of the podcast where I pitch you to join my Patreon and give me all your money, I have some calls from Jason. Hey, Daniel. Jason here, recording from the car in heavy traffic, trying to avoid accidents while I leave you a message. I've accidentally deleted a couple long messages, which is probably good for you and your listeners. But I just finished listening to the Always Sunny and B&B YouTube video in my car on the way to work. I can't watch it, but I listen to your videos. And I really enjoyed your talk about weather. I personally, because I run short games or one-shots, I don't typically use weather. It's a narrative like you were describing how you use it. Um, like, for example, I've got Palladium's After the Bomb game coming up that I'm going to run that's, you know, it's post-apocalyptic with anthropomorphic animals, but it's probably only going to run three or four sessions. So I'm not going to worry about weather tables and things like that in that game. But I'm going to start doing some solo wargaming. I've got two, two things I, I want to do for solo role-playing. One is basically doing exactly what you're doing with OD&D and outdoor survival and all. And I'm going to use weather for that. And I think I'm going to come up with a year-long weather thing. It'll probably be mirroring the real world just for ease. But what I'm going to do with that is I'm going to flip the seasons six months. Or I think I'm going to do it six months. Anyway, what I want, because if you do year-round, you've got summer and winter. It, well, you have all four months or seasons, right? But during winter, typically, especially in that medieval time, that fantasy world, you're going to be hunkering down in town. You're not going to be out looking for, you know, treasure and hordes and treasure maps and things in the winter, right? And you're not adventuring in the winter, and typically armies don't campaign in the winter. So what do we do during the winter? Well, you have occasional, you know, city adventures or whatnot, right? So, but our busiest time is, for us as humans, real people, is during the summer, because we're going to conventions, we're doing things, and then the winter is when we're stuck at home playing RPGs. So what I'm thinking about doing is flipping the calendar around, so winter in the game happens during the summer, when I'm going to be busy, and then summer in the game, when, which is actually campaign season in the game, the time to go out and search the map and delve in the dungeons is going to happen during the winter when I have time to do that. So that's kind of my plan, if that makes sense. The uh, Well, I'll talk about the other game another time. So anyway, I really enjoyed your video, and I want to thank you for all that you do, Daniel. We'll talk to you later. I'm going to jump in quickly here to say that, man, I really should be using weather in my... Uh, my, maybe I'll have my uh, OD&D solo campaign happening in the Southern Hemisphere because I started like an actual time. So like today I'm recording, for instance, it's February 19th. If I was playing today, it would be 
February 19th or sometime in the future, you know, if the party is moving across land, obviously, and sometimes they get ahead of the actual time. So maybe I will do that. Maybe I'll make January like the, I'll have to look to see what the weather's like in Australia, right? Australia would be a different, uh, a different, uh, the opposite of us, I believe. <laughs> I could be saying that wrong, but uh, we know something like that because that is interesting actually, right? What I'm kind of doing, of course, you could also be in a temperate climb where just you're busy all the time. But uh, I, I like the idea of using it in war games, and I like the downtime. Obviously, if you're doing solo and you're not doing narrative stuff, then you don't necessarily play. You know, you don't play basically uh, during those periods, or you just do a couple, like you said, city adventures. Maybe you could do a heist or something on solo. I'm not sure. I need to delve deeper into some other solo stuff as I continue to do this because I'm really enjoying kind of the wide scope campaign, but certainly doing something a little bit tighter. And smaller could be kind of cool for the months where, let's say, as you said, it's the winter. So that's pretty cool. I like that. And one thing I wanted to say, though, was that uh, if I'm running something, and again, I don't always do this, and, and you know, <laughs> do as I say, not as I do, uh, you know, you're going to run something that's only going to be the course of three days. You could actually use the weather still as a factor. You could say, well, this is happening in this mutant, you know, future or whatever, and this is what's going to be going on. Huh. Could I. Uh, increase the challenge of this by having it raining or snowing while this is happening, or it's been particularly dry. So when the player characters, as they always do in every system, want to light things on fire, you know, maybe it goes out of control. So it's pretty cool. I mean, I definitely think thinking about those things, which we don't always do, is really fun. It's not necessarily something you always have to do, but it's definitely a cool thought experiment to say the very least. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. So I was just watching your solo video number 10 with the new dungeon crew, the foxes. And, you know, they did avoid the giant weasels, but, spoiler alert, I guess. But how horrifying would that be? I mean, it's one thing, you know, we talk about wolves and bears and things like that, you know, that we know people had to, you know, probably more wolves than bears, that people had to deal with in real life, right? Back, back in the day, and even today, you have wild animals. But giant weasels or some of these other giant animals that they have would be pretty horrifying to face when you think about it. It's like giant ants, you know. When we think of them, they're using Tommy guns and flamethrowers against the giant ants. But, you know, I'm, of course, I'm talking about the classic, you know, 50s science fiction movie. But can you imagine trying to fight giant ants? Like, you know, ants the size of a horse with a sword and a shield? Come on. I, I, I don't think we... I, I think we avoid how horrifying the D&D world or any of these fantasy worlds with these giant monsters really would be. I mean, sure, we watch Jason the Argonauts and we watch him fight the giant scorpion there. And that giant scorpion is maybe the size giant ants would be, right? Or the bigger giant ants. I mean, a lot of people make giant ants more the size of dogs, um, which, you know, or, spider, or giant spiders, right? But, but even think that, you know, Jason the Argonauts, that's pretty – and even when we see giant spiders on the film, typically – it's it's pretty calmed down. I mean, if anything, we're looking something closer to what we saw in um, Vanderhoven's um, Starship Troopers, right? With the bugs fighting them, fighting the troopers. And even there, they had, you know, automatic weapons. Uh, imagine fighting the bugs in that movie with just, you know, melee weapons. I don't know. I, I, I think D&D and fantasy is a lot more horrific world than we give it credit for. Maybe Lamentations of the Flame Princess has something right with the tone. Okay, some Lamentations has that serious edgelord tone too, and I can live without edgelord in my D&D. So maybe Lamentations isn't the best example, but I still think D&D at its core 
if if you take it at face value, is a horror game. Yeah, that's a really good point. It got me thinking during the first part you were saying that player characters must be incredibly brave. You know, a lot of times we play our player characters as if they're timid or maybe not the bravest people in the world. But yeah, I mean, unless you're like in a corner and forced to fight something like that, you think most people would run. <laughs> so they've got to be either just brave or fearless or however you want to say it. Maybe maybe a little bit, uh, maybe not uh, as close to the sanity level that uh, your average citizen is maybe. But, you know, there are people that seek adventure and do things like that and risk their lives. So I suppose that that's where the player characters fall in. And so far as horror, I agree. I think D&D definitely can be played up as more of a horror setting if you're not going to play it as the uh, that you're really super heroic. And I think, too, that if you are, and I don't mean superheroic as, as like powerful, but I mean like heroic as a brave or fearless. And I think, though, the thing about Lamentations that kind of turned me off, honestly, was that it plays a little bit too much like the horror movie where everybody dies at the end but one person. And that's fine for an occasional module. But, you know, I don't feel like in a system, I've talked about this before. In fact, it's really funny. Maybe this is a podcast by itself, but I'll kind of throw it at the end here for people who are hardcore and listen all the way to the end. I've seen a bunch of videos and podcasts and, and blogs and stuff in the last, like, ever since the whole OGL thing started, where people are like, kind of, hey, you want to come to the OSR? Here's some stuff you should know. And one of the very first things people talk about is, oh, just know you're going to die all the time and it's really deadly. That is not necessarily true. I mean, I've, you know, I mean, I, I would call myself an old school player, old school DM, and yeah, we have characters that survive. For a long time, you don't die every single session when you play an OSR game automatically. And I think letting people or or leading people to believe that's the case is is not going to bring them into playing OSR games. Yeah, I think that is a, a podcast by itself. I'll leave it there. So anyways, thanks, Jason, for calling in. Thanks, everyone, for listening. As I mentioned earlier in the show, unless you skipped over that part, uh, you can call in the various methods uh, listed. I'll put a link, of course, to Jason, who called in, and also to Halberts and Helmets, so you can follow that podcast. He hasn't posted anything in a while, but maybe if he starts to get a lot of views, he'll jump back into it. <laughs> uh, but anyways, it's really good. If you go all the way back to the very beginning, he talks about his system, basically, and all the different things, he how he uses player characters. I mean, I don't agree with everything he says, but I, I like that he kind of has a reason for it, which is to me, the most important thing. And uh, also, you'll find a link to my Patreon. So if you want to support the podcast or my YouTube channels and uh, that kind of stuff, you'll also find a link to... God, I always forget to mention this. I have another podcast uh, called Monsters and Treasures with the amazing K.R. King, who is now dubbed the Carrot King. So if you go to any of his things, please do call him the Carrot King um, through some <laughs> flub of a conversation when he came to New York and visited. So uh, anyways, uh, it's a great, fun podcast. If you guys are interested in listening to two guys talk about D&D, and I guess you listen, you're interested in one guy talking about it, so hey, why not two, right? In any case, I'll talk to you soon.